Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Storytime with Boone. How are you doing? You had a good week? Good. Thanks for downloading this again. And uh, thanks for all your messages as well about last episode's uh, chat with Bez. Uh, we did a little interview with Bez at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester. There is a short film, actually. Some of the highlights have gone up on YouTube. We filmed the entire thing, uh, but some of the highlights are in a little trailer that I've put up on uh, YouTube if you fancy it, having a nosy. On this week's episode, I'll tell you about the well-known Irish comedian uh, to whom I once gave an Inspiral Carpets Cool As Fuck t-shirt. And uh, the shirt came to, how can I say it, a very sticky end. Yeah, let's leave it at that for now. I'll tell you about the time I was checking into a hotel with a, a former Smith whose name the receptionist had trouble pronouncing. Oh, how we laughed at that one. And uh, our young pre-Oasis Liam Gallagher got stoned at work one afternoon, courtesy of the Inspiral Carpets. I'll tell you about how I came to write the song Joe, about a homeless man that I once knew. Uh, that became a minor hit for the band in 1989. And still on the subject of homelessness, I'll talk about how a few days ago I got to spend an afternoon selling the big issue newspaper on the streets of Manchester. As you know, each episode of the podcast closes with a track from an unsigned band, and today it's a fantastic band from Manchester with an exceptional frontman. The band are called Nude. Thanks again to Red True Barbecue for helping us to get these podcasts together and to Distorted Productions, who helped me to put these stories right into your ears. Okay, let's do it. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. This is a story about when you give somebody something and they end up using it for something that it's not intended to be used for. <laughs> I once met comedian Sean Hughes, you know, the Irish lad, at a gig in Manchester. It was June uh, 1992. We had a drink together at the bar, got on really well, and became mates. And he told me that at the time the Inspirals were one of his favourite bands and I told him he was one of my favourite comedians. He was, I loved him, I thought he was great. Still is. He's probably listening to this now. In fact, he does his own podcast, doesn't he? I should really check that out. So, at the time, he was, he was dead popular. He was one of the biggest comedians on TV. You know, with this infectious Irish charm that he's got on that cute, mischievous puppy dog face of his. Anyway, so he stayed in touch and he'd often visit us in the studio, especially if we were in London, he'd pop round and see us. And uh, I made a guest appearance actually on his, uh, he had a TV show called Sean's Show. And I'd, I was on that. And I think I was on his radio shows a couple of times as well. And when he came up north, obviously, we went to see him. And on one occasion, he played at the Manchester Apollo. So I went along to the gig, enjoyed the gig, and I thought I'd go and see him. So I went backstage, went to his dressing room. And there's a few people milling around there in his dressing room chatting to him. And there's a young woman stood next to Sean. And Sean said, Clint, have you, have you ever met Anna? And I said, I know I'm Clint. Started chatting, I said, what do you do, Anna? And everybody in the room just went silent. When I said, what do you do? What do you do, Anna? Everybody just went dead quiet. And everyone's looking at me, she said, I'm an actress. And Sean said, Clint, she's only the most famous actress in the country right now. It was it was Anna Friel, and I didn't know, I didn't watch Brookside at the time, so I completely missed out on it all. And there I am making a total bell end out of myself. So back to Sean News, anyway. On one occasion, when me and Sean got together, I give him one of our infamous cool as fuck t-shirts at the time that was like the most iconic t-shirt of the 90s it was it was a big deal you know what i mean and he was really grateful he said he was going to treasure it like that you know cherish it even now sean's written several books during his career and there's one called it's what he would have wanted came out in 2001 and he sent me a copy of it with a little note saying dear clint hope you're well i've written a book you're in it lots of love sean so i'm thinking oh this is good i'll have a read of that i don't get to read a lot but when when i know i'm in a book i'll read it <laughs> you know what i mean it's true. Ask my wife, that's what I'm like. I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll be at music shops or at bookshops and I'll be looking at books and I check the index at the back to see if they're talking about me in it. And I'll, check, I'll read that bit. And then if they're saying nice things about me, I'll buy it. 
I've got about two <laughs> two books that say nice things about me. So back to Sean. This book that he's written, it's what he would have wanted. It's written from the point of view of a character called Shea Hickson. So it's the same initials of Sean. And a lot of the stories are based on actual events in Sean's life. So it's like, it's autobiographical, you know what I mean? And I enjoyed reading it immensely until I get to the bit, top of page 111, where he talks of, quote, relieving myself into a fading in spiral carpets, cool as fuck t-shirt, which I then chucked away, right? That's what he says, <laughs> yeah? And he goes on to say, like, this T-shirt had lasted far longer than any relationship I'd ever had, so it seemed apt that we sort of had sex before we parted. Well, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, you know what I mean? That can only happen to me, something like that. You know what I mean? There's me thinking he was going to cherish it. Cheers, mate. You could have used your your Jane Come Home T-shirt or something. I used to do a lot of DJing with Andy Rourke, who was the, the bass player in the Smiths. We spent a lot of time travelling up and down the motorways of the country. I don't see much of him these days because he lives out in New York now, but in my opinion, one of the greatest bass players ever to take the stage. I still get a lot of pleasure uh, listening to the bass lines of his in the Smiths. It's stunning stuff. We had some good times together. I used to have a battered up um, Ford Fiesta at the time. A mate of mine had given it me for a couple hundred quid because uh, I needed some wheels like quick. And the, the doors were hanging off it because it had been broken into that many times. In fact, one night I came out of a venue that I was DJing at and my fiesta was parked right outside and um, it was about three o'clock in the morning. And there was a bloke sat in the driving seat of my car, absolutely battered, and, and he was trying to start it with a 5p coin, which he'd unlocked the door with. That's how bad the security locks were on this fiesta. He'd used the coin to open the door and then he was trying to start it. He had it in the ignition slot. So anyway, I walked around to the driver's side and I said, yeah, mate, you're going to have to get out. And he's like, who are you? Who are you? What do you want? What do you want? I said, I just want my car so I can get home. I'd done a long set. You know, I've been on my feet for like five hours. I said, I just want to get home, maybe get a kebab on the way and that. Come on, get out of my car. <laughs> so me and my mate, Oaks, we gets him out and he starts saying, give me a pen and paper. Give me a pen and paper right away. Give me a pen and paper. So I said, what, what do you want a pen and paper for? He says, I'm going to report you. I'm going to fucking report you. And it's like, I was going to report me, you know, for getting him out of this car. He just completely didn't know what he was doing. Anyway, so we left him on pavement, vomiting down himself. <laughs> so but anyway, back to this legendary bass playing friend of mine, Mr. Rourke. One of my favourite memories is one time when we were checking into an hotel somewhere. Well, it was more like a B&B. Somewhere in the Midlands, I think it was, I remember correctly. So it'd be around 2001, this. We're in the reception there with our bags and our, our DJ stuff and that, waiting our turn. And then the receptionist, there was a man, probably in his early 60s, he turns to me and says, yes, sir, what's your name? I said, uh, Mr. Boone. He says, OK. Shuffles through his stuff and that, looking for keys. He says, there you go, Mr. Boone, there's your key. Turns to Andy, he says, what's your name, sir? And Andy says, uh, I'm Mr. Rourke, please. OK, Mr. Walk. Andy jumps, he says, no, it's Mr. Rourke. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Walk. So Andy, Andy's like starting to crack up a bit here, but he don't want to embarrass this poor bloke who's obviously got this slight speech impediment. So he says, uh, it's Mr. Rourke um, with an R. That's what I said, Mr. Walk. Mr. Walk, I can't seem to find your key, Mr. Walk. Where is that flipping key? Mr. Walk's room. <laughs> Mr. Walk, Mr. Walk. <laughs> and we're going under now at this point, me and Andy. Proper crumbling. 
He sounded like a bloke, what's he called on um, Is it Bugs Bunny? There's a bloke that's always trying to shoot him. Is it Elmer Fudd? Where is that wabbit? Where is that wabbit one two? Where is that wabbit one two? <laughs> so he's like, sorry, Mr. Walk. What, what's your first name, please, Mr. Walk? And he goes, Andy goes, it's Andrew. Okay, let's have a walk. Andrew Walk. Why can I not find your reservation? It's like they went on. It went on. It was incredible. I had to walk away, mate. I had to walk away. I just said, I'll see you in bar, mate. Andy, what do you want? He says, uh, get me a fucking whiskey or something. <laughs> This one's a nice story. You'll like this one. Before there was any such thing as a band called Oasis, there were three mates. They were called Noel, Liam and Bornhead. They came from a place called Burnage, a little suburb of Manchester. Noel and Liam were brothers. Noel had a job working for British Gas at the time and he'd sit every day in a little little shed in the British Gas storage yard just across the street from the Asiander it was. And the idea was that he'd help stop people nicking the company's stock of big yellow plastic pipes and... Uh, gravel and when Noel got a job working as a roadie for the Inspiro Carpets Liam took Noel's old job so it was Liam's turn to sit in the little shed all day and stop people nicking stuff and there's all the room for one man in this shed it was a little dead tiny little shed one man one chair a shelf with a little ghetto blaster on it and a stone roses poster on the wall I remember this image perfectly and one day in 1990 the Inspirals were in the area in that part of town and we're doing a photo shoot for one of the weekly music papers. I think it might be Melody Maker. And we suggested to the photographer that we'd go to Liam's yard to get some cool pics on these, these massive plastic yellow pipes that they have in the big stack of them. And the photographer said, yeah, let's give it a shot. So we, we went along there. Liam was in his shed listening to the Stone Roses. It was the only cassette tape in there. He played it all day, every day. And we set about climbing on these pipes for the photographer and pausing like boys in... Manchester bands did back then, you know, arms stretched out, mouth slightly ajar. A bit gormless looking, really, but it was all the trend, that's what we used to do. And we thought it'd be funny to keep bombing Liam's shed, so we kept throwing stones at Liam's shed while he was sat in it. Big white British gas stones landing heavily on his roof, like, boom, he'd be like, fuck off, you dickheads, you do like that. And then again, an- another massive white storm, bang, Oi, pack it in your knobheads, like that. proper winding him up. And at the time, Bornhead was uh, a plasterer by trade. He was a real good plasterer. He did a lot of plastering for our guitarist, Graham, in his house. And it was spot on, it was right smooth. <laughs> put, that on, put that on your business card, right smooth plastering. Paul Arthurs, a.k.a. Bornhead. And he also had a, a really old British uh, vintage car at the time. It was an old Austin A40, and I had an old 971 Volkswagen uh, Type 3 Fastback. So we bonded over our love of classic cars, all me and Bourne. And occasionally when Noel needed a lift moving some of the Inspiral's gear about, he'd recruit his brother, Liam, and, and Bornhead, and a couple of his mates to help out. Because Bornhead could drive, obviously, so he'd, he'd usually be the bloke that'd go to Salford Van here and rent a van for us. And for reasons I'm not going to go into just now on here, <laughs> one night in 1992, we decided that we needed to empty our office like super quick through the night. I, I know it sounds proper shady, doesn't it? But it's, it's, not, it's nothing, it wasn't against the law what was going on. The band were down in London doing Top of the Pops 
and we packed Noel back off to Manchester. We said, right, mobilise your troops, get a van, enter the office, everything out. Every single item needs to be out there by the time the sun comes up. <laughs> and basically, our removals men that night were the boys who became one of the country's most influential bands of all time. It was Noel, it was Liam, it was Bonehead, it was Gwigsy, and it was Tony, who became Oasis. They're all there emptying our office into this big truck. I don't know how much we paid, and we probably give him a tenner each or something like that, but Bonehead's still a top bloke, and it's, it's a real testament to his character that he still gets on with all the ex-members of Oasis, including both the Gallagher brothers. Uh, and I'm going to get him on the phone right after this. Nice one, top one, get yourself sorted. That was Oasis, and on the phone, Mr. Bornhead. How are you, Born? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, not bad, are you at home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, everything all right? Yeah, all cool, man, all cool, just chilling out. I was, I was just telling about the uh, that classic car you saw, that Austin A40. Uh, it was my wife's, it was the first car. Right. Married, and that was the first car she ever bought, <laughs> and I had pride and joy. I think it was a 1966 one. It was a beautiful one. You saw it, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. Soldiers, but I was plastering at the time. Yeah. And uh, also rehearsing down on the boardwalk. So it's like, I, I, I used to use it. But it's like, don't use that car to go down the builder's yards and don't use it doing gigs in with it. I'm like, no, 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 I won't do that. <laughs> but I used to be down in the builder's yard every day, like 18 bags of sand and cement plaster in the boot, throw them in. Killed it, didn't you? Friday night, it'd be, yeah, Friday night, you'd get a gig, so throw all the amps in the back. I just, I just, Trash, the suspension just fell apart, it just collapsed. Ruined it, ruined it. Probably, probably worth about half a million quid now as well, but anyway, that's another Well, it part. would be because of because you owned it, it would be, wouldn't it? Nah, seriously, yeah, I'm £2 tested because I owned it, but yeah, no. It's probably got your it's DNA in it, whatever it is, it's probably got your DNA in there, hasn't it? DNA, probably, yeah. <laughs> probably, plenty of that. When was the last time you did any plastering, Bornhead? Do you know what? Probably not that long ago. I'd say probably last year. No, in fact, I, I, I did a bit of polyfilling last week. Polyfilling? Probably don't count as, don't count as plastering, but I still got that such. No, I, I, I did loads. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let anyone come near my plastering in my house. If anything needs to be, I'll do it. Yeah, you, you're brilliant. You're a great plaster. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Your guitarist still holds us about 35 in his kitchen. Has he not stayed up with No, about 1991. Give me what did he give me? Some vegetarian stew or something he'd give me. <laughs> Said, man, and it, 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 it was, it was like the most tasteless thing you'd ever eaten. And it was like, oh, what's that? You know, you have to say, oh, that's lovely, that game. Um, no, rubbish. Rubbish food. Didn't right. pay me. Right. It was in there about two days. I remember it was a beautiful job. So I was just talking as well about the fact that we we used to use you and like Noel obviously and his mates, but you included. Because you had the driving licence, you were always the designated driver that had to go and pick the van up on that, weren't you? Yeah, if there was anything needed doing, I think if you if you were ever doing anything in the studio, yeah. Noel would give us a shout to uh, drive the van. One of them big daft seven and a half ton things with a big tail of some uh, sulfur van. I, I did yeah, I did a video as well at the Apollo loaded in there. What was that? You could dragging me, drag me down. Yeah, dragging me down. The big white the white balloon jet in the scene is brilliant. Yeah. 
Listen, before you go, I've just played one Oasis tune. I want you to pick your favourite one. I know what it is, but you introduce it. I'll put it on now on the on the podcast. His favourite tune's got to be Columbia, hasn't it? It's an absolute beauty, and I love it myself as well. Yeah. Listen, Bonehead, you're a legend as always, and I'll see you soon, yeah, man. Nice one, Tim. See you later, mate. See you later, brother. This is Columbia from Oasis. So on each episode, I like to pick a particular song from me at time as a songwriter and explain how it came about. And today, this is a, a story of a, a chap that I met when I used to work in Ashton Underline. So in the early 80s, I started working in Ashton Underline, a little suburb of Manchester. And it was at a furniture manufacturer's in a, an old cotton mill, which I'm guessing I've told you about time and time again. Every time I drive past this mill now on the M60, I always said to wife, I've ever told you about that. And she's like, shut up, shut up. Even kids do it. When we get around the, the guy, Bridget Mill, I say, kids, you see that? Dad, shut up about the mill. <laughs> but it's a big part of me. It's a big part of my life, that, that place. I'd be good if you ever demolished it. In fact, you know what? About 80% of these anecdotes are set in that mill, aren't they? It's where the Inspirals used to be. Anyway, so before the Inspirals, I was in this mill working as a, a furniture manufacturer. And there's a lot of other businesses in the mill. It was one of these multi-occupancy uh, buildings. Until that point, you know, the, a lot of these cotton mills around the north of England, particularly around Oldham and Ashton and Rochdale, they'd just been demolishing them. They're like, every week you see another one getting knocked down. And I used to think, you know, there's something wrong here. You shouldn't be doing that. And somebody got wise to it. I think probably early 80s. Somebody got wise that these cotton mills are actually ideal for putting loads of businesses in. Cheap rent. Beautiful buildings. Well, they'll never make them again like that, will they? That's a bit of a cliche. I don't have so many age when I say things like that. So anyway, there's a lot of business in, the, in this mill that we're in, the Guide Mill, the Guide Bridge Mill on South Street. And there's a lot of steel fabricators, motor mechanics, a couple of textile companies. Real busy little place, lots of work going on and really, you know, just a dead positive place to be. Anyway, so there's a local bloke, a homeless chap, who I got to know quite well because he'd spend a big part of every day pushing this massive barrel that he had around the mill in the local area, collecting bits of scrap metal and that. You know, you get bits of electrical wire and they'd go out the back and burn the plastic off and that'd make the, the copper that was left, he'd weigh that in. And um, he'd go around to the local scrapyard, get money, so whatever they call them, scrapyard, metal reclamation depot, I think they call it. I don't know what they... But that's how he made his living and his name was Joe. And we'd stand and chat outside our business, outside the unit, and he'd black cigarettes off my workmates. They'd always oblige, never tell him to shove off, they'd always sort him out. He was a dead likeable chap. And he'd tell us stories about his past, how he'd been in the war... He'd lost some toes because of frostbite. He never showed us, didn't want to see it, but apparently he'd had toes missing and everything because he spent so much time out in the cold weather. But proper trooper. And we'd give him, like, off-cuts of steel and that take away, get some cash, go and weigh it in, get some cash, Joe. And he knew that I was into music because he'd, he'd see me coming and going with bands. You know, I'd, I'd had my little recording and rehearsal studio in the mill that I was building at the time. 
and we'd chat about stuff, chat about music a bit. And it was dead well liked in the neighbourhood as well. You'd see kids like winding him up and him going along with it, humouring him, just having a laugh really, getting on with his day. And it always seemed like he was comfortable with the, the community, you know, he's part of it. And, and, you know, people accepted him. As Joe, the guy with the barra, you could tell he was a dead strong, spirited guy. You know, you could tell he had a good soul. So as he got older, he got he got weaker. He'd, he'd been a really strong bloke. When I first met him in 1979 or whatever, he was a dead strong bloke, you know, massive build on him and that. But by 84, 85, he's sort of losing his weight, losing his strength. And he had to get rid of this barra because it's such a big thing and, and he couldn't do it. So, you know, he, he lost a big part of his income because he couldn't go and collect the scrap metal anymore. So we didn't see much of him, but he'd still pop round for a, a chat and a brew. You'd see him you know, borrowing cigarettes off people that he could never pay back. That's in the song, you know what I mean? That's one of the things in the song, he borrow it and he was very gracious, but he could never give them back. And around 1985, I decided to write a song about him. So this was just before I joined the Inspirals. And I never dreamed it would become a record at all because at that point I'd never made a record. I was still dabbling around with music and writing a bit. But I just thought it'd be nice to play him, write a song, record it in, in my little studio and then play it to him and say, I made, wrote a song about you. The organ riff on the song, it's like the... The organ riff and the rhythm with which I play it is inspired by a fall song. The fall did a record called New Face in L. So it was a complete rip-off of that in terms of the rhythm and the way I was playing it. There's a spoken word section as well on the middle eight of the original demo version, which I got our drummer Craig to to read out. And again, that was inspired by the fall. Interesting fact about the, the recording session where we actually recorded the final version of Joe, which was, I think it was in 88, 1988. We collaborated with 808 State who at the time, they'd just released their first album, which was called New Build. So 828 State, then they were pioneers of Acid House. They were some of the first people that we knew that were doing it, probably in the UK. Nobody else was doing stuff like that. And Martin Price of 828 State, also partly owned Eastern Block, which was our favourite record shop in the town at the time. He also had an independent record label called Creed. So it was Martin who helped us to set up Cow Records, our label, and helped us to get distribution so we could get things moving. And as far as I'm aware... That record, Joe, when we made it, it was one of the first indie dance collaborations. I think the Shermen had done something similar with a band called Bam Bam. But generally, indie bands and dance outfits didn't work together. You might have a producer that was from a dance background, but for um, you know, like a, a dance band and an indie band to collaborate, it didn't really happen. So it's quite groundbreaking at the time, if I remember rightly. <laughs> do do inform me if you know otherwise. But I remember being surprised when I, when we were recording this session with Martin Price. I've got, I'll come back to Joe in a minute, the, the man. But I remember being surprised seeing Martin Price in the studio when we were recording on it. Because he was dancing on his own in the studio, but he was still behind the mix. I just stood up dancing, going for it. It was generally something that you, you only did with your girlfriend back then. You know, the, it, seriously, it was. It, it sounds daft now, because both just dance on their own now, don't they? But back then, it was unusual. And there's Martin Price going for it. Stood up in studio, legs going, arms up, having his own little rave. I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I'm raving, man. It's fucking tune. Do you not feel it? I said, of course I can feel it, but I'm all right over here, mate. He sat with me, brew. He's like, come on, have a dance. I'm like, no, I'm all right. I'll be all right. Anyway, so back to 1985. I finished writing the song during a couple of weeks away somewhere. And I'm thinking when I get back, I'll record a little version of it and, and play it to Joe, you know, just so he can hear this song that I've written about him. And I'm thinking he's going to really like this. Anyway, I came back from holiday, went back into work on the Monday to hear the news that while I was away, this, this man, Joe, had passed away. They found his body on a small piece of land, just a, just a stone's throw from the mill, just at this side of a building there, and he'd collapsed and died through the night. So sadly, he never got to hear his song. But his name was Joe, and as it says in the song, the street lamp was his home. And he's probably listening up there now. He's sat there with a fag in his hand, won't he? Toes missing. I like that. Good song, that lad. Good song, that lad. 
know what I mean? See you soon, Joe. This heart is still so proud With all the things it's sold you once achieved But when you make a plan No one wants to know about such things Cause I'm Joe This tree life is my home From place to place I like to roam Going boats right through my phone Going boats right through my phone so the story of Joe leads me nicely into the final story on this episode of my podcast. And this week I got to do something incredibly special in Manchester. I was invited by The Big Issue to be a guest vendor for an hour or so in order to help raise awareness uh, for the newspaper and to help raise some extra money for a particular vendor. For those that don't know, The Big Issue is in the UK. It is the newspaper uh, that is published every week to benefit local homeless communities. And there are street papers like The Big Issue all around the world. Uh, It is is an international network of street papers. In fact, they're called INSP. So one week of every year, they have a vendor week where they get recognisable people from the local area to... Oh, celebrities. Go on, it's it's celebs, isn't it? They get a celeb. And you stand there selling papers with a vendor that talks to you about what he or she goes through. And I did it, and I, I found myself on a street that I've walked along hundreds of times in my life as a shopper, as a nightclubber, looking for the next place to go for a drink, as a dad pushing a pram, a DJ on my way to a gig. I've been up and down this street hundreds of times. I know it well, but I've never been out on the same street in the shoes of a homeless person trying to sell the big issue. And even though there was a, a bit of publicity leading up to it, on the day, I wore a hat. I had a high-vis vendor's tab hard waistcoat type of thing on. People assumed I was homeless. There were a couple of kids that came along because they knew I was going to be doing it. But most people passing just thought I was an homeless person. And for an hour, I was trying to sell the big issue. And I felt invisible. It felt it felt like being a spirit. I mean, when I did approach someone with a, would you like to buy a big issue, sir? I would get a response. You know, everybody I spoke to, I got a response, whether it was, they're not today, mate, or sorry, I've already got one. But generally, you'd see people approaching and they'd look the other way. They'd pretend to be on the phone change direction, look in a shop, oh, what's that in a shop? You know, to, things I've done myself, I've done it myself. But when you know how it feels to be that man or that woman, you'll never look at them the same way again. And I met some wonderful people while I was down there. I met a homeless chap called Paul, probably about 40 years old, maybe a bit older, he didn't recognise me, started chatting, clean-shaven, relatively smart, Mancunian, very positive, very polite. And I asked him that golden question that we all want to ask any homeless person that you see, What's your story? How did you get here? What what was the trigger point? What was the trigger point in your life where your fortunes changed and you ended up on a path which has ultimately led you to this today, homeless? And it is you want to ask everybody that. Don't even see somebody begging. Part of you just thinks, how did you get there? And his reply was this, and it was shocking. He just said, when I was six years old, my parents died in a car accident and me and my three brothers were taken into care. And that was the start of it. I'm not saying that happens to all kids that are taken to It's not a generalisation, but it was his trigger point. That's where it all started. Up until that point, he'd had a normal existence and suddenly it all changed because of a tragic thing that he had no control over whatsoever. And every one of those homeless people that you see, they've all got a story. None of them wanted to be in the situation they're in. You know, things have happened in their lives which have significantly changed their story and their path. None of them sat in school and when the career teacher said, what do you want to do? I want to sell a big issue. I want to be. I want to be homeless. I want to beg. You know what I'm saying. You don't need me to explain that to you. The vendor that I got to work alongside was a chap called Stefan, and he came here a few years ago from Romania. And I asked him how he got here, and he said, "I walked it." 
And I said, that's incredible. You walk from Romania, like thousands of miles, 2,000 miles maybe. First of all, though, he said, I went south first. I headed towards Syria via Bulgaria and Turkey. I think that's the route. And eventually, I think he couldn't get into Syria at the time. It was a couple of years ago. So he turned around and he decided to come to England in search of work. He spent nine months walking. He literally walked, I think it was like 3,000 kilometres south and then 5,000 kilometres this way. <laughs> He's an amazing person. I don't remember ever meeting anyone like him before. He just a unique person. He's called Stefan Nan, N-A-N, and he is a vendor in Manchester. And I asked him, one of the questions I asked him was, when you came, I'm thinking, did you bring your family? And I said, I said, did you come alone? And, what? and he said, no, no, no. He said, God came with me. He talks a lot about God. And completely unexpectedly, while I'm there selling the big issue, my mate Johnny Marr, <laughs> another Smith, he turned up to buy a big issue for me. He knew I was doing it. I'd mentioned it to him earlier in the day, but he didn't say I'm going to come and see it. He just turned up bought a big issue from me and then proceeded to stick around and help to do a bit of selling too. I feel so privileged to have been given that opportunity to work alongside Stefan and to meet the other, some of the other homeless people and the big issue staff. And since that, that hour or so, St Anne Square last week, selling the big issue, trying to sell the big issue, I've appreciated my home, my bed, my bath a little bit more than I did before. Okay, it's time for me to get off. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you do like it, please subscribe if you've not already done so. And uh, leave me a message if you can on iTunes with a little bit of the comments. And they've all been great so far, so thank you for that. And don't forget, every week I do a Spotify playlist where you can hear some of the records that I'm talking about or some of the artists that I'm referring to or even music that comes to mind while I'm telling you the stories. As always, I'm going to leave you with a piece of music from a band that haven't got a record deal or a publishing deal. They're a band from Manchester who I first heard about early last year, so early 2015, and they're called Nude. They met at the Royal Northern College of Music in 2013, currently one of the busiest bands in their hometown of Manchester, and in frontman Inigo Ford, I believe they've got one of the outstanding performers of the present day. I've not seen anybody like him in a band. He is an absolute star. The band are amazing. Thanks again. Have a brilliant week, and I'll leave you with this. It's All My Lady from nude story time with boone with red's true barbecue subscribe now on itunes
give you all 